0: Good morning, everybody. Welcome to this edition of Poets Table, a show in which we spend a half hour with a great poet, some of them contemporary, some not. Today, I'm very, very excited to tell you a little bit about the life and work of the great American poet W.S. Merwin. I know that a writer or a poet is one of my favorites when I name one of my pets after them. So I currently have a dog named Wendell, named after Wendell Berry. And for a long time, I had a cat named Merwin. Merwin was a great cat. Um, as good a cat as W.S. Merwin was a poet, if I, if I do say so. He was wonderful. Um, Merwin has gone on to greener pastures now. But um, today we're going to talk about the poet, not the cat so much, W.S. Merwin. Uh, His full name was William Stanley Merwin. He was born in New York City in 1927. He grew up across the river in New Jersey and later in Scranton, Pennsylvania. Um, His father was a Presbyterian minister, and from what we know from Merwin's writing as well as things he said about his dad, Um, He was at times a very difficult figure, and Merwin grew up in kind of that milieu of the church and hearing hymns and the psalms, and I think that there's something of that cadence, um, that kind of reverence for language uh, that comes through in his poems. His early poetry was um, much more, we could say, formal, meaning Uh, Merwin used punctuation, he used a lot of rhyme, he was very influenced by um, more traditional poetic forms. He studied as an undergraduate at Princeton University, where he studied with the great poet and kind of tragic uh, figure John Berryman, amongst others. At some point, though, Merwin seemed to kind of break out And he had the very formative experience of spending some time working as a tutor for a very wealthy family in Europe. And his exposure to Europe, particularly France and Italy, put him into relationship with certain traditions, um, such as like the troubadour poets of southern France He became an excellent, and maintained this work throughout his career, an excellent translator of other poets' work um, in a dizzying array of languages. It's it's quite unbelievable if you ever find a book of W.S. Merwin's translations to see how many languages he was working from. His translation work uh, definitely influenced his own poetic process, the great um, but controversial poet Ezra Pound once told Merwin that he should be a translator because one should focus on the roots, not the seeds. So going down to the roots of the language and of the tradition. So Merwin became a translator. Um, he became, of course, um, even more and more as he as he grew up older, um, a poet in his own right. He actually found in a pretty much abandoned farmhouse in the south of France and purchased it for some absurdly small amount of money. And he maintained this house in the south of France his entire life, and it is actually still in his family. Um, But he pretty much left America for many years, living in the south of France, um, translating, uh, making a living off of his translation work, and writing his own poems, His seminal collection, probably the most um, famous of his collections, is a book called The Lice, which he published in 1967, and it's often read as a response to the Vietnam War. These poems were very, very uh, political without being explicitly so. I think you can see something of the state of the world at that time in the work. And around that time as well, Merwin made a major decision that fascinates me in that he ceased using punctuation in his poems, um, almost entirely. And he began writing without punctuation saying in an interview that, um, he felt punctuation stapled the poems to the page and he wanted them to float like, um, verbal speech rather than written, the written word. He was also, um, deeply interested in Zen Buddhism, which, prompted a move to Hawaii in the 70s um, to spend some time at a monastery there. It turned uh, out to be a kind of um, another major move in his in his life in that he fell in love with Hawaii and not surprising, of course, right, um, but decided to devote his um, life to restoring a... Kind of a uh, exhausted piece of property that had belonged to the Dole pineapple plantation, um, and he became. I think it's not too strong a word to say obsessed with planting native and rare palm trees on this piece of property on Maui. So as he settled into his new life in Hawaii, um, he continued to write. Of course, very prolific poet. Um, he wrote many collections in Hawaii, uh, all the way up until his death, um, his death in, I believe, 2014, if I'm not mistaken. Um, and the poems that I would like to share today, um, one of them is from one of his last collections, uh, and it's probably my favorite poem of his. Uh, another is from an earlier collection, and if we have time, um, one more poem that I greatly admire that's sort of from an in-between place in his career. So I'm hoping that today I can give you a sense of his, um, his voice and his style. His uh, work is um, deeply concerned with environmental issues, political issues. Um, I think you'll hear that coming through in the work, but I never find his work to be didactic. I never think that you know he's trying to convince me of anything except to see the world with fresh eyes. Um, he is one of the great imagists by which I mean, uh, a crafter of imagery in the poem. I don't, I oftentimes will finish a Merwin poem and have no idea of what has happened to me from beginning to end. There's a feeling of magical transformation that occurs, um, between the first and last lines of a Merwin poem. I want you to listen particularly to his last lines, um, in the poems I'm going to share because he has a way of almost lulling us to sleep and then doing something very startling uh, upon finishing a poem. I think a good poem to begin with, um, to think about this, is a poem called For the Anniversary of My Death, kind of a morbid title. Um, but, and it's sort of, I guess, a morbid subject to begin <laughs> with uh, this morning, but all of us have a date, a date of, of our death that we don't know yet and that we pass every year. And it's kind of haunting to think of that, Uh, to think of that date as almost a space that we walk through every year. Uh, And I think that Merwin is getting at something about that in this poem for the anniversary of my death. Every year without knowing it, I have passed the day when the last fires will wave to me and the silence will set out, tireless traveler, like the beam of a lightless star. Then I will no longer find myself in life as in a strange garment, surprised at the earth and the love of one woman and the shamelessness of men, as today writing after three days of rain, hearing the wren sing and the falling cease and bowing not knowing to what. So it's a poem of, I think, uh, recognition of mortality, but also appreciation um, and there's a feeling I feel in this poem of um, gratitude for what one has in the face of knowing that one is, I guess, doomed to lose it all. Um, and so, Merwin oftentimes works with this these dichotomies of the hard truths of life, um, the things that we all have to suffer through, um, and how they can oftentimes uh, help us to a more deep appreciation of our of our lives on earth. I think he's a great poet of darkness and light, and there's a constant oscillation between those two states in his work. So I'll I'll just read the poem one more time, and we can um, maybe touch upon one or two things from it. For the anniversary of my death. Every year without knowing it, I have passed the day when the last fires will wave to me, and the silence will set out, tireless traveler, like the beam of a lightless star— then I will no longer find myself in life as in a strange garment, surprised at the earth, and the love of one woman, and the shamelessness of men, as today writing after three days of rain, hearing the wren sing and the falling cease, and bowing, not knowing to what. So it's a little bit syntactically difficult to follow this poem, and again, if you search for the for the anniversary of my death by W.S. Merwin, you'll find this poem on the Poetry Foundation website. It's available to you there if you'd like to um, to actually read the poem on the page. But he's saying in in a sense that every year he passes without knowing it the day, the date of his death, his future death. The last fires will wave to him. Um, The silence will set out like a tireless traveler, like the beam of a lightless star. So silence will sort of set out from him. He will no longer be writing poems or speaking, right? There will be almost this emissary of silence that will pass uh, from him. And he will no longer find himself in life as in a strange garment, right? So this idea of the body as a kind of costume or garment that one puts on for a lifetime and then kind of sloughs off. Um, He will not be surprised at the earth, at the love of his wife, at the shamelessness of men. In the same way that today... After three days of rain falling on Maui, he hears a wren sing and the falling rain cease and bows not knowing to what. So this moment of sudden silence after this torrential downpour is the equivalent of when he will die in that kind of silence, that same space, spaciousness and silence. So kind of a remarkable poem, I think, uh, going from you know one of the most morbid images we can imagine, the date of our death. Um, and I should say the poem is also... It says, for the anniversary of my death. It's almost dedicated to this date, in a way. Um, But it calls us to this moment of clarity when he hears the Wren sing after all this rain that's fallen. And death, rather than becoming something, uh, seeming something very scary uh, or unknown, feels, in this instance, to be something that we might even welcome and bow to um, and feel gratitude towards. All right, so... Um, The next poem I would like to share is, um, for some reason, my favorite poem of Merwin's. And this poem is called The Pinnacle, P-I-N-N-A-C-L-E. If you search for it, you'll find a link to it um, through the Writer's Almanac, actually, um, which also featured the poem at one point. The Pinnacle is from one of my favorite collections by Merwin. If you want to know where to start with W.S. Merwin, because it can be a little overwhelming, he wrote so much. Um, My recommendation is to start with a book called The Shadow of Sirius, S-I-R-I-U-S, and he's referencing there the star Sirius. And this poem, The Pinnacle, comes from that collection. All right, let's hear it. Both of us understood what a privilege it was to be out for a walk with each other. We could tell from our different heights that this kind of thing happened so rarely that it might not come round again for me to be allowed, even before I had started school, to go out for a walk with Miss Giles, who had just retired from being a teacher all her life. She was beautiful in her camel hair coat that seemed like the autumn leaves. Our walk was her idea. We liked listening to each other, her voice was soft and sure, and we went our favorite way, the first time, just in case, it was the only time. Even though it might be too far, we went all the way up the palisades to the place we called the Pinnacle, with its park at the cliff's edge, overlooking the river. It was already a secret, the Pinnacle. As we were walking back, when the time was later, than we had realized. And in fact, no one seemed to know where we had been. Even when she told them, no one had heard of the pinnacle. And then where did she go? So (laughs) this poem is just to me, uh, it's almost cruel in that it it does something um, really crazy. I think Uh, it is a poem that sets up a scene in a very kind of plain spoken narrative way. Like you might have felt like I was reading a piece of prose. If you look up the poem, you'll see that it's, um, it's, we say when we're talking about how a poem's lines are broken up, we say how a poem is lineated. And this poem is lineated in such a way that, um, you know, it's, it's pretty plain spoken. Um, it's, it's, a. Uh, I tried to, to privilege the line breaks a little bit so that you could hear where the lines break, but it's not a poem that really relies upon lines. Um, it sort of lulls us to sleep a bit. We're long for a walk with this young man. Um, I should say boy. He was a boy at the time. He was in school. And this teacher who has retired, her name, Miss Giles, <laughs> kind of a perfect name. Um, I assume that was her real name. So an unmarried woman, maybe someone who's dedicated their life to teaching, someone who definitely has a particular fondness for this particular boy. William, may probably would have called him Billy or something like that, Billy Merwin. And they're out for this walk. I'll read the poem again, actually, before I talk about it too much. But just to give you the gist of how the poem works, they're taking this walk together to this place that They believe to be real, and we, of course, learn is real via the poem. I mean, we go there with them, right? Um, We go to this place called the Pinnacle in the poem, this place at the cliff's edge overlooking the river. But we learn that upon returning, no one has ever heard of the place. And though that's not in itself that strange, I still feel that there's something very strange happening here in that it almost seems as if he's kind of gone on a walk with a ghost to a ghostly place. Um, The last line of the poem is, and then where did she go? And we get the sense that perhaps this was the last time they ever saw one another, and that the whole experience is imbued with her, um, her looming absence from his life. This is basically... You know, I think many of us can look back on our childhood and remember a particular figure, um, an adult, maybe a teacher, who we might have had some connection to, and we move on in our lives, or they move on in their lives, and we no we no longer see them. And Merwin is getting at the strangeness of that and the absolute na- uh, nature of that in this poem. I would like to read it again um, and then kind of work through it a little bit more slowly, if that's all right. The Pinnacle by W.S. Merwin. Both of us understood what a privilege it was to be out for a walk with each other. We could tell from our different heights that this kind of thing happened so rarely that it might not come round again for me to be allowed, even before I had started school, to go out for a walk with Miss Giles, who had just retired from being a teacher all her life. She was beautiful in her camel hair coat that seemed like the autumn leaves Our walk was her idea. We liked listening to each other. Her voice was soft and sure, and we went our favorite way, the first time just in case it was the only time. Even though it might be too far, we went all the way up the palisades to the place we called the Pinnacle, with its park at the cliff's edge, overlooking the river. It was already a secret, the Pinnacle. As we were walking back, when the time was later than we had realized, And in fact, no one seemed to know where we had been, even when she told them, no one had heard of the pinnacle. And then where did she go? I have to revise a little bit my reading of the poem. Merwin is saying here that he hadn't even started school yet, but he somehow is associated with Miss Giles, and she, I mean, they like each other. Um, They like listening to one another speak, and their different sizes suggest that this is a rare opportunity. Um, I, I get the feeling that, um, you know, sometimes, I, I haven't been a teacher myself, but I, I, t- I taught college students, you do have sometimes a sense of just a very special student who you want to connect with somehow. And so, yeah, you might take a walk or get a coffee um, and just, like, try to connect with them. And I feel like Miss Giles is maybe um, sees the precociousness of this young boy who is probably already has like the poetic temperament um, and decides that she wants to invite him on this walk. And it's not at all, you know, creepy or dangerous. It doesn't feel strange. It just feels very innocent. Um, You know, he describes her as beautiful. She's um, in her camel hair coat that seemed like the autumn leaves. And we get there a sense of the autumnal and the, the feeling that she is wearing this coat that feels like it's almost on the brink of vanishment, right? Her voice was soft and sure. This was one of my favorite moments. And we went our favorite way the first time just in case. And then there's a single line that says it was the only time. And one thing that I really love about poetry is certain lines can read like thoughts unto themselves. And though they might be connected to the lines preceding and following them, um, they are often kind of these little glimmering clues that shine out of the poem. So though the sentence actually reads, we went our favorite way the first time just in case it was the only time, even though it might be too far, by isolating that phrase, it was the only time, Um, Obviously, in some way, he's conveying that this is the only time that this happened. So this is a moment of great significance in the poet's life. Um, This walk is already a secret, and they're walking back. The time is later than they had realized. And they tell people, it seems, that, hey, we walked to the pinnacle, (laughs) and no one has ever heard of the pinnacle. And I'm having a hard time explaining why it is that I find that so strange. It's, you know, it's like this knowledge that they have alone. And it is representative of this experience that they've had together, walking together. Um, The pinnacle is sort of like a symbol of this walk and this moment of almost apotheosis where uh, the the boy, W.S. Merwin, and the elderly, Miss Giles, have had this You could almost call it like, I don't know if I want to say a religious experience, but this almost like pilgrimage together to this place that means something to them, but no one else has ever heard of. And it's maybe a metaphor for those conversations we have with someone that, you know, you come back from in a sense, and you really can't share what what happened because they are so um, private and secret, as Merwin says in this poem. If you're looking at the poem on the page, again, The Pinnacle by W.S. Merwin, available with an easy online search, um, you will see that there's a big stanza break after no one had heard of The Pinnacle. And Merwin does this thing that he always does, which is just this astonishing move where he throws something at you you're not expecting, and he says, and then where did she go? Um, it's it's just so, I, I, I kind of want to use the word brutal. Um it's just one of those moments where you feel, again, like the anniversary of my death that I just read earlier, um, the poet wrestling with vanishment, death, absence in this way that is just astonishing to me, and I hope to you as well. Well, in the time we have left, I'd like to read um, maybe my, there, not to, it's not that important, I mean, to co- try to quantify one's favorite poems, but the present is neck and neck with the pinnacle for me. Um, This poem, The Present by W.S. Merwin, which you can find um, on the Merwin Conservancy website, which is a website maintained by um, a kind of trust that is working to continue Merwin's work in Hawaii by maintaining the gardens that that he planted there on Maui. So we're going to talk about the poem, The Present, which is um, from Merwin's uh, book of poems, Garden Time. And Garden Time is a really interesting title, right? This idea of time spent in the garden, but also the different sort of um, quality of time that one finds in the garden in the natural world. And this poem is about a garden. I think it references the Garden of Eden, as you'll hear, and it's about time. So this poem is called The Present. As they were leaving the garden, one of the angels bent down to them and whispered, I am to give you this, as you are leaving the garden. I do not know what it is or what it is for, what you will do with it. You will not be able to keep it, but you will not be able to keep anything. Yet they both reached at once for the present, and when their hands met, they laughed. What is the present? I mean, there's a pun here, right? It's a it's a gift, but it's also the present moment. It's all that we have. Um, the present is being offered. These kind of Adam and Eve characters, upon leaving the garden, it's sort of like time is going to start right now, and you're gonna you're gonna be in the flow of the past, the present, the future. Unlike in the garden, where there's a kind of um, eternal quality to time. So I'm giving you this present gift slash present moment or maybe present life and you're not going to be able to keep it but then again you won't be able to keep anything and these two figures reach out at the same time to take the present and when their hands meet so it's almost like they might reach for the present and their hands kind of almost maybe the present is not something tangible that you could hold so their hands touch and they laugh which is just this like wonderful kind of turn in the poem where we go from this buildup of something like a, almost an angel, right? Um, well, it's, he says, one of the angels uh, offering them this gift. And then there's this moment where of connection or recognition when the two touch and laugh. So let me read the poem again. And then we can think a little bit more, though we are running low in time, unfortunately. Time, Uh, as I was saying, is a theme in this poem, and time does fly when we're looking at great poems by great poets like W.S. Merwin. The Present. As they were leaving the garden, one of the angels bent down to them and whispered, I am to give you this, as you are leaving the garden. I do not know what it is, or what it is for, what you will do with it. You will not be able to keep it, but you will not be able to keep anything. Yet they both reached at once, for the present, and when their hands met, they laughed. I love the figure of the angel in this poem. The angel doesn't really know what they're even giving; these two. Um, I am to give you this as you are leaving the garden. Like I've been told that this is what I'm. This is my role right now. I don't know what it is. I don't know what it's for. What you're gonna do with it? You're not gonna be able to keep it. You're not gonna be able to keep anything. Yet there's a there's a moment where the poet writes yet. They both reached at once. So, despite all of this um, prevarication by the angel, I don't really know what this is or why I'm even supposed to give it to you, Um, they still reach for it. Yet they both reached at once for the present. And when their hands met, they laughed. It almost feels like the present is the joy of the laughter. Like, it's almost like the present is not so important as is this connection that these two have. Merwin may have written this poem um, with his wife in mind and the idea of all the time they spent together in the garden on Maui. Um, I'm not positive, but um, it certainly feels to me like there is a... Uh, this is the last poem in the book Garden Time, and I feel like it's this astonishing summation of his entire life and his concerns with you know, his Buddhism, his time in the garden on Maui, Um, And just the gift of his continued um, dwelling in the present, which is where so much, so many of his poems are about um, dwelling in the present moment, but also like being conscious of the passage of time, as we saw in the pinnacle, for instance. Um, I think that that's very much present in that poem.